Hi, I'm Jeremy Hall, and you're listening to the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. As we continue in our bonus season, we are very excited to share that we have finished recording all of the video and audio for David's forthcoming book, Introducing Christian Ethics. We are very pleased to continue sharing uh, sections of these lectures with you. The one that we're bringing today falls into the category of meta-ethics, which is a chapter-long conversation, of course, but I'm sharing with you some of the, the, the richness around questions of moral theory and where morality comes from, and hopefully uh, you'll find it intriguing, interesting, provocative enough to want more, both from the forthcoming book and David drops some names in here. That If you're interested in ethics or meta-ethics or moral theory, you should go check out. We hope you enjoyed this episode. We're glad you're here. This is Kingdom Ethics. Religious and philosophical ethics has had a long and rich debate about where rules ultimately originate. If we believe moral rules come from God, and especially if we believe that God's will is what makes things right and wrong, we are into some form of divine command ethics. Overall, ethical systems that treat rules as coming from outside ourselves are called heteronymous. By contrast with the belief that we can or should come up with our moral rules autonomously. Moral rules believed to be of divine origin are usually given strong vocabulary such as moral commands or moral laws. This is certainly a major strand of religious ethics, especially in the Abrahamic traditions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. But it is also possible to speak of moral commands or moral laws and not ground them in divine will. Immanuel Kant, who lived from 1724 to 1804, the great German philosopher, proposed the categorical imperative as a kind of secular moral law. In his famous 1788 book called The Critique of Practical Reason, he put it this way, quote, Act only according to that maxim by which you can at the same time will that it should become a universal law. That basically amounts to the idea that only if we could reasonably desire that every person in the world act upon the same basis that we are acting upon, are we acting properly. This is sometimes called the principle of universalizability. Notice that the categorical imperative pretty much replaces large numbers of specific rules with one overarching rule. Kant strongly emphasized that moral maturity involves imposing such moral duties on oneself, based on the dictates of reason rather than the command of God. He rejected heteronymous ethics because he believed such externally imposed commands to be unworthy of human rationality and dignity. That's what children do, obey rules imposed by more powerful others. Grown-ups impose morally rigorous demands on ourselves. This move was a major part of the turn from religious ethics to rationalist ethics during the Enlightenment. In retrospect, it is clear, both, that the human desire for externally imposed moral order never went away, despite Kant, and that autonomous rationalist ethics was no less susceptible to error than any other ethics. Moral rules become moral principles when they move out one level of abstraction. The way Stassen and I put it in Kingdom Ethics is that rules tell us concretely what to do and what not to do, 
while principles offer more abstract or general underlying reasons for rules. If you impose a rule on someone and can't tell them the principle that grounds the rule, they will not find it very convincing. Principles like honesty, respect for persons, and autonomy ground many rules. In medical ethics, for example, the rule governed practice that patients be told the truth about their condition, be given all reasonable treatment options, and be allowed to choose for themselves what option to take are grounded in these principles. Underneath core principles are even more basic convictions. In traffic law, for example, the law might be that the speed limit is 70 miles per hour. The key principle underneath the law is protecting public safety. The basic conviction underneath that principle is that human life matters. If someone, in turn, asks why human life matters, the answer has become theological or visceral. That's when you know you have reached bedrock, the basic convictions level. I still like the quadruple Decker model that we offer in Kingdom Ethics that makes basic convictions foundational, then one level up is principles, another level up is rules, and at the top come particular judgments in specific situations. People are not always explicit that this is how they are reasoning morally, but often they could identify this thought structure if pressed. This model has analytical power as well. For example, notice that people who don't have much use for rules tend to jump from basic convictions to particular judgments, skipping over rules and often over principles as well. One group like this were the Situationists, whose ideas were popularized by Joseph Fletcher, 1905 to 1991, in his 1966 book called Situation Ethics. For Fletcher, the only relevant basic conviction is love. Therefore, the only relevant action guide is, is to act to advance love. My view is that while situations matter deeply in ethics and love is always a relevant moral principle, Situation, situationism as a theory doesn't work that well in practice because even love needs moral structure around it. On the other end of the spectrum, we find legalists who focus tightly on rules and miss everything beneath or even above in moral decision-making contexts. Moral intuitionists just feel their way in specific situations without any underlying thought structure at all. Medical ethics tends to live at the principles level and to generate rules from there, so their ethical approach is sometimes called principalism, and so on. A technical term for ethical theories based on rules, duties, or obligations is deontological ethics. While there are many forms of deontological ethics, their shared idea is that the rightness or wrongness of an action is not based on its consequences, but on the nature of the action itself, or in terms of the relevant rules that apply. Here's an example. Abusing an elderly person is awful. It has bad consequences. We wouldn't want to live in a society filled with elder abuse. There are many rules and laws against it. But the fundamental reason not to mistreat an elderly person is because it is intrinsically wrong. How do we know this? We just know it, deep in our viscera, as evidenced by our outrage when we see it happen. The widespread agreement about the wrongness of abusing the elderly may offer some evidence of a natural or God-given moral consciousness that resides in human beings. Moral conscience is sometimes described as the voice of this moral consciousness 
that arises when we are considering its violation. But even moral conscience can go wrong because it can be damaged, suppressed, or malformed. See chapter 7. Another dimension of rule ethics is the question of absoluteness. Much effort has gone into considering whether rules are absolute, to be obeyed 100% of the time, or whether moral exceptions can be considered. While there is a long tradition of rule absolutism in moral theory, the belief that moral rules are exceptionless, most ethicists today agree that many moral rules admit of exceptions, largely because of the consequences of not admitting them. But that doesn't cover all moral rules, and exceptions are not handed out like free candy. We can lie to save a life, it is widely agreed, but it is also widely agreed that we must not ever torture children for any reason. On every moral issue that we deal with, we face the question of the relevant moral rules and any possible exceptions. The Latins get a gold star for inventing the term prima facie to add as a qualifier in front of moral rules that might admit exceptions. That term means at first appearance. An example is the idea that lying is wrong at first appearance, but there might be exceptions. The one proposing the exception is responsible for showing why an exception was justified in this case. That's how the idea of prima facie moral rules works. The concept is also significant in legal settings, where it means that, at first appearance, there seems to be sufficient evidence to proceed with a legal case. 2.4. A Detour into Metaethics we saw earlier that people who absolutize rules or tend to operate entirely at the rules level are sometimes called legalists, and there are plenty of them in religious life. On the other hand, many would argue that moral norms have weakened in recent decades, especially in Western culture. Certainly it is true that any social consensus about moral norms has weakened if it ever existed. But questioning about moral norms goes further than that. Many very smart philosophers have doubted moral reality itself or, if there is a God, what God has to do with it. Their critiques are so significant that it looks like we need to take a detour into metaethics before continuing down the ethics highway. Let's start off with one of the oldest issues in divine command ethics, which surfaced as far back as Plato. It has been called the Euthyphro Dilemma, from one of Plato's famous dialogues of Socrates. The dilemma is this. Does God forbid X because X is intrinsically wrong? Or is X wrong just because God forbids it? The problem with taking the first option is that this admits a moral standard that exists independent of God's command. The problem with taking the second path is that God could arbitrarily command any atrocity, and that would make it right. When we think of the many murderous religious zealots of history, this becomes more than a theoretical problem. That's one kind of meta-ethical problem but an entirely different level is reached when people doubt whether morality is anything other than subjective human opinion. One way to understand the ethical skepticism that became visible in the early 20th century and remains with us today is as a response to growing awareness of cultural moral differences. It is true that discovering the vast differences between moral beliefs and practices across cultures and among individuals can be highly disorienting. Paying close attention to the differences in moral rules and norms across cultures and eras is sometimes called descriptive moral relativism. Its recognition of cultural differences in moral norms is simply accurate. 
Example, the Nazis believed in killing, quote, subhumans. Hopefully, no one reading this book believes, quote, subhuman is a proper way to describe anyone, let alone that it might be permissible to kill those so designated. This reminds us that it is quite a leap to move from descriptive to normative moral relativism, which is the belief that there does not exist an objective or transcendent standard of right and wrong, and so we must learn to tolerate moral difference without passing judgment. This once trendy view should not have survived the discovery of Auschwitz. When we see both how much people disagree about morality and how emotional they get, it can be tempting to conclude that moral statements merely express feelings or attitudes rather than describing anything in the world. This non-cognitivism essentially reduces to the idea that there is no true moral knowledge and certainly no objective right and wrong. Instead, there are only attitudes or dispositions, or in a theory called emotivism, moral norm statements are viewed as just expressions of human emotion. Moral skeptic J.L. Mackey, 1917-1981, in his book Ethics, Inventing Right and Wrong, published in 1977, argued that human morality is indeed simply invented. Mackey was an atheist who argued that there is no objective or transcendent morality and that moral rules and norms are entirely a human creation. My own view about these meta-ethical matters can be sketched briefly as follows. I believe that there is indeed a moral structure to the world and that God is the creator of this moral structure like everything else. God has always sought to communicate this moral structure to human beings for our good and has done so through both general revelation available to all people and special revelation available through divine self-disclosure at specific moments of salvation history. More on this in the next chapter. The human ability to discover, hear, and obey God's commands and goals is damaged by sin, which surfaces powerfully in cultural systems of all kinds and in every human heart. Our effort to articulate moral rules and goals even those which we believe come from God, is often deeply compromised, and we frequently find that we were wrong. In that sense, I believe both in objective, God-given morality that transcends cultures, and in our grave human difficulty in discovering, hearing, and obeying it. I certainly accept that many human moral norm statements are flawed, sometimes disastrously so. Still. I do believe that the core of the moral dimension of human existence is a discovery rather than an invention. It's like how all of us humans have the good fortune to be born into a world with plants, animals, and colors, all abundant and diverse. We did not invent plants, animals, and colors, but we surely need language to describe what we so blessedly discover. Ethics is a language for describing what we have discovered in the moral dimension of life.